Okay, before we get into it today, we need an update from the Angle Homeschool Academy. Charlotte, how are we doing today? Good. And uh, you learned an important lesson today. That you learned how to ride your bike in a freak April snowstorm. How was that? It was terrible. Why was it terrible? It was really freezing and we could barely see. Well, why were you riding your bikes in the first place? Because we went to go get chickens. Chickens? Are you kidding me? We're getting chickens? Oh my God, that's a whole nother episode. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Before we get to our COVID collab panel, I've got Dr. Dan Pierce on the line. Dr. Pierce is an emergency department physician at St. Patrick's Hospital, and he's also the medical director of, of the emergency department. Dr. Pierce, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Happy to be joining you. I do have to sort of interject that you are the first, um, now for the first time we've had two brothers on the podcast. So, uh, you know, we're not necessarily in a celebratory mood here right now, but let's celebrate some milestones when they happen. I, I appreciate that. I, uh, I'm the, I'm the less famous version of the two of us, I would, I would guess. Well, here's your chance. So um, <laughs> wanted to talk to you about you and your colleagues are on the front lines and wanted to get a sense from you what the state of play here is in Western Montana. Um, seems like we are sort of in a wait and see mode. We've taken a lot of uh, what seem like proactive steps or what feel like proactive steps, but it, you know, you're sort of on the front lines. What are you seeing and feeling out there? Currently, right now, I think in, in as part of the community response, um, what we are seeing in the emergency department is a drop in our overall volumes currently um, in anticipation, I believe, of what is to come. There's been a lot of modeling and predictions to try to estimate when we will need our peak resources, and current modeling suggests you know, probably within the next 15 to 23 days, um, we should be seeing our peak here in Montana if everything else holds true as far as what people are doing locally, social distancing wise. Um, there's been a, a lot of work system-wide locally through the hospital, through our emergency department, through nursing staffs um, to prepare for this, to take the best care of this community that we can. Yeah, it, it, I mean, this is one of those crises where as it unfolds, you know, um, a, what feels like an overreaction today feels like a half measure tomorrow. And it does feel like Montanans have been relatively proactive in engaging, you know, taking on these social distance measures, trying to isolate ourselves. And it sort of, intuitively feels like the state of readiness is is good um i mean is that is that a is that an accurate way to think about it or a reasonable way to think about it do you think we're set up well i i think so i think that's a that's a hopeful way to think about Certainly. it you know we we kind of assume based on i guess now less so our, our personal social bubbles and more of our social media bubbles since we're all kind of isolated at home that everybody is being pretty cautious. And, you know, we can hope that that holds true throughout the community, but we don't know for sure. And we won't know 
you know, until a delayed fashion of if that holds true and what the community is doing has a big impact on our peak resources. And, you know, there's some of these models that we're looking at that are predicting what our peak resource needs are going to be suggests that as far as inpatient beds in Montana throughout the hospitals, we're probably fine there. Um, if we're looking at ICU beds or so intensive care beds, um, we are going to have a shortage um, if the predictions hold true, but this gives hospitals an opportunity to create some alternate care sites to try to ramp up that capacity ahead of time to meet that demand. Um, ventilators is the next big target that we're looking right. at. And currently there's a predicted shortage there. It's nowhere near as great as a lot of other communities are facing right now. Um, and again, we have a little bit of lag time where we can try to be proactive about that. And there's, you know, it's incredible to see everybody stepping up to the plate system wide. And it's really fun to see kind of the good coming out in everybody. We've had, you know, people understand that we're kind of the first point of contact for a lot of these really sick um, coronavirus patients. And we've had people reaching out to us from all over asking, how can they help when the surge hits? What can they do to help us, you know, filter through these patients? Are there other non-COVID patients that we can be filtering to these alternate care sites? And it, it's been amazing to see everybody stepping up to the plate for that. So it sounds like, I mean, a big theme of this crisis, watching it unfold, um, particularly in the hotspots across the country, um, has been this sort of failure to use time to our advantage, right? You know, this was a predictable situation. We, we knew um, that, it, you know, this surge was coming and it sounds like you and your colleagues and the system in general, um, Montana is fortunate in that we're behind in terms of the number of days before the peak. And it sounds like everybody's doing everything they can to, to ramp up and use that time most effectively. Yeah, I think system-wide, that's the case for sure, um, as far as, you know, resource management for personal protective equipment and everything along those lines. We are, we're set up ahead of a lot of the rest of the country as far as that goes. So one of the things uh, that's sort of an impossible question to answer, but everybody asks is, you know, how do you see this playing out in our community? How, how long are we going to be um, isolated in our, in our homes or wherever we're isolated. Um, do you have a sense for, you know, you mentioned 14 to 23 days, I think before in terms of the surge, do you have a sense for how long this sort of state of, uh, affairs will, will persist? You know, a lot of that depends on, on what the community decides to do. Um, my kind of line is that we can prepare for the worst, um, as an emergency department, as a physician group, as a hospital, as a system. Um, but it's ultimately up to what the community decides to do as far as how bad it's going to get and how long this is going to last. Um, the current models that predict peak, I think it was um, the 23rd of this month is the predict predicted peak um, incidents here locally and then it tails off after that and if everything goes 
well and people you know are isolating throughout this month and probably the beginning of may we may see the end of of the main concern by the end of may hmm. you know we might be somewhat back to normal june but there's also a chance that you know, we're, this is a year long thing where there's, you know, not restrictions as, as limited as they are now, but where we have to be careful throughout next flu season as well. And so a question I have too, is what, what do you, how do you and your colleagues protect yourselves? I mean, that's a big part of the capacity too, is that, that you and all of the people you work with are able to stay healthy as well. How, how do you, how do you approach that? So that's a good question, and um, we're we're taking a very cautious approach, and we have the benefit again of being involved in a larger system that's had, you know, other sites in our system have had a lot of experience with this, and then we have data coming out of China and other countries that help us understand what the risk is to healthcare providers, and that includes physicians and nurses um, on the front line, and you know, it's appropriate use of appropriate personal protective equipment in the right time, in the right setting. And part of that is identifying what is the right time and what is the right setting. And that's part of the triage protocol that we have coming into the hospital. We've divided people into two pathways based on screening questions and initial vital signs. And there's what we're calling the dirty pathway and the clean pathway. And the dirty pathway doesn't mean necessarily that we think you have coronavirus, but there's a possibility. And we've separated basically the the facility geographically. So we're not having somebody with an ankle fracture being seen in a room that was just previously occupied by somebody that we thought could possibly have coronavirus. So part of it is separating things out so that we have appropriate expectations. The nurses have appropriate expectations prior to going into the room, which allows us to, you know, pick the right equipment and the right safety gear um, to minimize that potential contact. There are procedures sometimes that we need to perform that would increase the risk to people in the room. And we have specific negative pressure rooms that we can try to perform those procedures in to minimize the risk to everybody else. So far, what we've seen from the data is that healthcare providers are not at a significantly increased risk here in the United States of getting infected as opposed to the general community. So that's been reassuring so far. Sure. Um, but that being said, we have backup plans for if and when one or two or th- three of us, hopefully not more, gets infected as far as how we're going to fill that role and cover that need. Super. Well, I hope that, um, I hope those backup plans are not, uh, well, you, you make them cause you're probably going to need them and I'm sure there's going to be some, but it sounds like you're doing all you can to minimize that. Uh, last question, doc is, you know, what can we sort of citizens in the community, uh, do to support, uh, the medical system and the people within it? So I think for me um, personally, we've we've had a lot of local community support that we've been feeling. There's been some signs out in front of the hospital. There's a couple of supportive Facebook groups. We've been getting, you know, food sent into the emergency department from 
you know, pizza places and you name it. And, and that's all super appreciative as far as just being acknowledged, um, especially for the nursing staff who really do, you know, a vast majority of the, of the work um, and the important roles and interactions with these patients. But personally, for me, taking this seriously as a community, honoring the social distancing guidelines, staying six feet away, not gathering. And this means not just managing yourself, but kind of being responsible for, you know, your kids and your neighbors and other family members and just trying to keep people honest. And I think this is a really good opportunity for personally in the community, us to step up and start helping people out. If you have elderly neighbors that are at risk, you know, text them and see if they have a grocery list and go get their groceries for them. Or if there's somebody who's quarantined or even worse, you know, diagnosed positive as coronavirus and they're in their house, they don't need to be hospitalized. This is a time for people to step up and go get groceries for them. And, you know, this is, if we can keep the infected people isolated and we can keep our distance socially and limit our activities outside of our own houses, that's going to be the best thing that for this community. Super. That's great insight. Uh, Dr. Pierce, thanks so much for uh, joining us on the podcast and sharing your wisdom, but also thank you for the, the great work that you and your colleagues are doing on the front lines. You are, um, you're keeping us safe, saving our lives and um, ensuring that um, we're going to get through this. So I really appreciate you joining us. You bet. Thanks for having me on and uh, great job on the podcast. Keep it up. Okay. So let's transition now to our panel. I'm joined again today by economist Bryce Ward, Missoula Economic Partnership Executive Director Grant Keir and CEO of United Way of Missoula County, Susan Haypatrick. Thanks to everybody for coming back on the podcast. Let's start with Bryce uh, with some reality setting. I mean, the basic sort of tenor of, of what I'm what I'm seeing in the media is that this is going to get worse before it gets better. There are some positive signs, but the um, reality is, as a country, we're in for a, a pretty difficult uh, four to six weeks. Would you agree with that assessment, Bryce? Uh, yeah, I think that's spot on. Uh, you know, as bad as it's been, uh, it's only just now starting to really ramp up, particularly outside of New York City. And so the next month will likely be, uh, you know, certainly one of the worst months in this country in my lifetime and probably in most of our lifetimes. Uh, by the middle of the month, we'll probably see 9-11 level deaths every day or so. And that's not going to be very good. And then obviously at the same time, uh, you know, we're seeing unemployment. I mean, today we had the official jobs report for March, which of course was from the, the week of March 12th, what's the reference week, which was before a lot of things started shutting down and it was still mm -hmm. way worse than we were expecting, right? Unemployment jumped by a whole percentage point, 700,000 job losses. Uh, and so uh, the, you know, most economists think that the true unemployment rate right now is probably somewhere around 15%. Uh, maybe a little less. And let's let's contextualize that. What was the unemployment rate at its peak in the financial crisis of two thousand eight, two thousand nine? I was you know right around ten. Yeah, I think a ten is about what we got to. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I mean, and it's just it will keep going up at the same. So this month we're going to continue to see more people, you know, adjust economically 
at the same time, uh, we're going to be seeing lots of chaos in our healthcare system. And yeah, so it's going to be a rough one. Hopefully it's just, you know, we reach the peak at some point in April and we start moving down the curve and we can start to see a, a light at the end of the tunnel, which probably won't really arrive until June, but uh, it's, at least we'll be hopefully moving down uh, towards the suppressed level that we're hoping to reach so that we can start doing other things with our lives. Yeah, one of the interesting things when sort of following this story is you hear you, you hear comparison standards from other countries that um, have mobilized kind of national level responses, whether it's um, South Korea or China or Spain, et cetera. I mean, we have not really mobilized a national level response. It's sort of been state by state. And, you know, in, in Montana, we've sort of been a bit isolated. Some of the, the, the projections for Montana look more favorable than other states. And, you know, we heard from Dr. Pierce that, the, that one of the benefits of having a lag time to the peak here in Montana is that we're, we're, we're relatively um, progressive and using um, not only the social distance measures, but using this time to sort of uh, build up capacity in our healthcare system. Bryce, how do you get your head around kind of thinking about how to understand the problem, both as a citizen of Western Montana, but also situated within a state, within a country, and these different layers of um, sort of administration here? It's tough. Obviously, it's a big country, and it's going to hit it's not, it's not like we're all going to see the same thing. It's going to be worse and better in different places. And hopefully in Montana, because we are kind of at the end of the line, we got enough advance warning. We started doing things earlier and hopefully we'll get to be on the better end of the spectrum. That's just hope. That's not, I have no data that suggests one way or the other. In terms of actual action, uh, obviously what we can do most effectively is act locally. Uh, we have to pay attention to what's happening in Washington, and we have to hope that Washington acts to provide us with resources because they're the ones who can borrow. And in a situation like this, we have whatever we have currently sitting in our bank accounts or in our houses or in our factories or you know warehouses uh, locally. But in terms of acquiring the resources or providing the unemployment insurance or the payment program for small businesses or whatever it is, that's all money that we have to borrow and uh we can borrow uh you know from the bank or whatever it is but in reality the the money's got to come from the federal government acting on all of our behalfs and so we can't ignore what's happening at the federal government but we just have to hope that they do what they should do and uh execute the vision which i think most people agree on is what we should be trying to do which we've talked about in the previous podcast and, and, you know, act, and actually execute it well. And, you know, so that's basically our, our, you know, keep an eye on Washington and make sure that they're hopefully providing us with the resources and then act locally to make sure that what we do here, we're doing everything we can to work the problem locally because that's where our effort uh, and our specific resources that we can bring will do the most good. Sure. So in terms of uh, working the problem locally, Grant, you're kind of on the front lines there. Um, I would assume helping the local business community sort of understand what is in this relief package and helping them figure out how to access some of those benefits. Can you speak to uh, what you're seeing on the ground there? Yeah, I think um, 
maybe to, to express and summarize sort of what we've been up against this last week is that, you know, the Congress did take action and it established a lot of these new programs and acts to, to support small businesses right down at the local level. Really, this past week has been about them developing the rules and the, the finer details of exactly how these programs would roll out and through which vehicles. So this week's been a week of sort of chaos in our world of trying to understand these programs in their details so that we can really connect people to the right resources in the right ways. And I think what we're seeing, you know, if you could think of our healthcare providers on the front lines of the of the healthcare crisis that we have with COVID, I think we're going to see a lot of our financial institutions at the local level be on the front lines of the economic crisis here in the days and weeks ahead as they become the people, the vehicle through which a lot of these programs are implemented. So we've been working with our uh, economic recovery task force here in Missoula County to try to understand how can we create a framework in which people feel like as small business owners, they can navigate these programs. And Grant, can you so, tell us who's on that task force? Like what, 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 um, what organizations are represented? What sort of people are serving in that capacity? Yeah, I'm thrilled that Susan on the show with us today is a member of that task force, but we've got the Missoula Chamber of Commerce, uh, Small Business Administration, the Accelerate Montana team from UM, who are all involved in economic development in various ways. Uh, we've got the Downtown Partnership, we've got uh, Montana Job Services, and a lot of groups who, are, who have already traditionally been really involved in these roundtable discussions that we've been hosting on a monthly basis around how we support our economic development. And we've really just tried to pull that group together to meet on a much more consistent basis once a week to try to understand what we're hearing from the business community and how we can better respond to the needs of the community, connect them to the resources that exist, exist already, and identify any gaps in resources that we need to be advocating for coming down the pike. Sure. Okay. So, sorry, I cut you off there. So, what, what's uh, tell us about the task force work. What, uh, what's the rubber yeah, so hitting the road here? This week, we really tried to just come up with a really simple framework that people could approach some of this and some rules of thumbs they could follow. So, we came up with what we're calling a shorthand, the, the four-step team approach to navigating the COVID crisis as a small business. And TEAM stands for uh, T for take steps to protect the health and safety of your workforce. And on our website and on the county's uh, emergency response website, we'll have descriptions of things you can do to do that. E is for evaluating your contract so that you really understand what kind of commitments you have in place and others are expecting of you at this time and what you can do to renegotiate those. Uh, a is for assess your cash flow and understand exactly what your needs are right now and how you're being affected by COVID and what you can anticipate in the months ahead. And the M is for making contact with your lender or the SBA so that once you have that information in hand and ready to go, you're ready to sit down and talk about what programs are the best fit to help you adjust to the impacts that you've observed already and be ready for the weeks and months ahead so that if there is a chance to press pause and go again, we're ready to do that. Excellent. Susan, not only do you sit on that task force, but you're also, you know, piped into the leadership of the nonprofit uh, community here. Uh, I know you've been hosting some, some sort of leadership, uh, virtual happy hours. Tell us about the mood in the nonprofit yes. space and, and how leaders uh, of various nonprofits here in, in Western Montana are, are, are reacting in this moment. So from what I've observed, um, you know, we are always as nonprofit CEOs balancing shifting priorities and a sense of urgency with calmness. 
I think I told you last week that my leadership secret is my ability to hide my panic from others. And I think that that is uh, characterizing a lot of the approach that my fellow CEOs are taking, looking after their people, uh, their staffs, communicating with their boards. Uh, there is, of course, a great sense of uncertainty, stress, worry. Um, some of the things that came up on our virtual happy hour were questions like, will people lose commitment to nonprofits and their community due to their own very real concerns about their own livelihoods, themselves, their families? So will we see a great drop off in support and in volunteer capacity? Again, how do we stay grounded and hopeful? How do organizations that people might not see as being critical frontline responders right now, our arts organizations, environmental organizations, animal welfare organizations, how do they cope and uh, you know, maintain connections with people at a time where their work is not seen as, as, as critical as the work of some others? I think the good news on that front is that we really do have a very talented cadre of nonprofit leaders in Missoula. There are a lot of superstars who could be doing something somewhere else for a lot more money and probably a lot less stress. And I feel like they are taking deep breaths. And I did not sense panic. I sensed, as I said, stress and questions, but uh, everybody seems to be staying surprisingly well-grounded. Well, that's certainly good to hear. And I think your comment last uh, week about, you know, the, the, the organizations that uh, have focused on, you know, sustainability and shoring up their resources and making sure they're in good shape going into this are the ones that are, you know, probably going to come through at the best. And then it's nice to hear that the leadership of these sorts of organizations is thinking about uh, those others that might not be as mature or stable as well. Um, and you also were able to give out another round of funding through your emergency fund. Is that right? People seem to be still contributing to that in, in really generous yes. and inspiring ways. Yes, it's been amazing. Uh, and contributions from all over the country. I, I don't really know how somebody in Villanova, Pennsylvania, uh, you know, knows about United Way of Missoula County hmm. COVID-19 fund, but um, that's just one example. And yeah, we'll some take of these contributions, yeah, exactly. Uh, some of these contributions come with very uh, touching notes. Uh, a lady that wrote in who said, I'm on a fixed income. I don't have very much money, but I know people are suffering and sent $50, which really is very touching. So we distributed by the end of this week, which I guess is, is uh, coming, we will uh, have distributed about $100,000. We're going to reopen the fund um, the same day that our podcast airs, I think. And uh, we wanted to wait to make sure that 211 Human Resource Council, our partner in administering the fund, is able to, uh, has the capacity to manage that fund because they are also managing the county's $50,000 rental assistance fund. And that's just a lot. But uh, we, we distributed $400 to almost everybody who successfully applied. There was, we decided that we would cap the distributions at $400 per person. And sure. 
again, some of the responses that we've had from people who received that check yesterday um, were really very, very touching about came just as they were paying rent or bills or you have no idea what this means to me. We had Clearwater Credit Union volunteer to step up to be a site for people to pick up checks if they uh, didn't want them mailed to their homes. And there was, when we went to drop off the checks, there was quite a line there of people already waiting. So we look forward to doing more. So reasons to be hopeful there, not only in the the giving of others, but in the difference that giving can make. Bryce, in terms of uh, things to be be positive about, are, are you seeing anything in the data? Uh, let's focus on the disease itself here. Anything in the epidemiological data that, that would lead you to think that some of these measures we're taking as far as social distancing, uh, are they making an impact? Are we getting, are we seeing any benefits from, from those, those, those measures we're taking? Uh, the data are still, we still got a, probably another week before we really see them kick in. Too, uh, is it too early to tell or we just don't know yet? Like, you're seeing a little bit. I okay. mean, the, the, the curve is flattening, um, you know, and certainly the rate at the daily rate at which cases or deaths goes up has come down it's not coming down rapidly it's kind of drifting slightly but you know we certainly have you know we've seen things flatten out in italy uh washington state continues to you know have a much slower rate of growth than other places Mm -hmm. and they you know they were first and they acted pretty quickly so i'm optimistic uh, obviously, the data that we're seeing from surveys, from people who are using the geolocating data in your smartphone to see how much you're moving around, you know, all of the data suggests that people are certainly moving around less. So mathematically, that should help us. It just takes a while, particularly given that a lot of what we're seeing in terms of actual case numbers is just a backlog of testing, right? We're as you roll out tests, your case numbers go up just because you're now testing more people that uh, you weren't testing before. So, but I am optimistic that the curve will flatten out. I think I don't have any reason to doubt most of the models, which suggest that yeah, it's going to be bad for a month. But come come April, May, depending on where you are, uh, we should be past the peak and coming down. Yeah, that's been one of the, I mean, of the hard things just from a personal basis. I feel like, you know, at least in this community that we've been pretty, well, it's hard. I mean, everything's going to seem like an underreaction in retrospect, like people are going to say that they should have done more and they should have done it earlier. But it does feel like here in Western Montana and Montana in particular, you know, we've been under this social isolation orders for, um, a while in the shelter in place last week. It feels like, you know, according to Dr. Pierce, we're using the time to stay, you know, to, 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 to build up capacity. And the, all these things are encouraging. Yet at the same time, the, the, the actual crisis uh, from a healthcare standpoint, I mean, the, actual, the, the economic crisis is here. But from a healthcare standpoint, the crisis is, is not here as much. And I just hope that people will stay vigilant in, in, um, in this social isolation and, and taking these measures and protecting themselves and others. Um, so hopefully people will heed that message from, from Dr. Pierce and others. And, and it's nice to, that we're getting regular updates from the governor 
about how to behave responsibly as well. Grant, I would love to hear more about specific things that businesses uh, can do to take advantage of some of these programs. I mean, you sort of laid out the task force and some of the infrastructure and strategy your, your group is, is, is bringing to bear there, but, but what are some actual things that, that people listening can do to, to, to get help now? Yeah, that's a great question, Justin. And you know, there's a there are several programs that have been rolled out in conjunction with existing programs. So uh, maybe just the spirit of these programs first is very much it's clear that the federal government knows that it's really hard and costly to support people through things like unemployment. So there's a lot of incentive in these programs for employers to keep their employees on their payroll if they can possibly do that. And uh, the first thing that pretty much every business should be looking at right now is what the Small Business Administration calls the Economic Injury Disaster Loan. And that's a, a fairly simple loan form that they can fill out online that allows them to apply for up to $2 million at 3.75%. What's interesting about that program is that um, for some costs like payroll, mortgage, rent, utilities, first $10,000 of that could arrive to your local lender in as few as three days and be forgiven on the at the end of the first sort of first 90-day window of this to help people get through this initial phase. Once people sign up for that, they're really then starting to, that's, that, that's a program that predated the CARES Act. Once they've signed up for that, they really need to start making some decisions with their lenders, with their attorneys, um, and with their financial advisors about really the right pathway through the CARES Act for them. Um, there's a there's something called the Paycheck Protection Program within the CARES Act, and it really allows any small business to look at sort of these two paths, one being a loan that really incentivizes keeping people on your payroll for the next few months and provide some um, relief and forgiveness around the loan if you're able to continue paying your employees. That's as, uh, as inexpensive as 1% loans with some forgiveness for the first two and a half months of your payroll. And then there's another route that's a tax credit, and um, that has some different benefits associated with it. What's interesting about those and why it's so important to have your ducks in a row before you sit down to, to look at these two programs is that they're going to be really specific to your case, how you're going to spend your money over the next few months, where your big costs are, and which of these is going to be a greater help to you to get through this. And they're mutually exclusive. Once you choose a loan, you can't tap into the tax credit. And once you choose a tax credit, you really can't tap back into that loan program. So um, those are the really big sort of helpful pathways that they're trying to provide employers with to help them get over some of their standard operating costs that they know they're going to incur, at least in this urgent crisis mode. So this is sort of that relief package right up front for small businesses. I think one thing that's really important that we're understanding is right now, um, this looks like it probably will be a first come first serve basis. Um, and I'm hearing from lenders right now, you know, these these rules for these programs were literally issued at around midnight last night as of time of us recording this. They're really going through in their programs and defining and understanding exactly how to implement them today. And they're gonna be under tremendous stress and pressure to work with so many people who are gonna need access to these. So really encouraging people to reach out to people with whom they have a relationship at their bank, their current lenders, their attorneys, and their accountants to get help. 
we're also in the process of trying to develop some task force team members who can provide that kind of assistance because what we don't want to see is a lot of our small businesses in our community disadvantaged by not having those relationships or access to those people who can get them into these programs as soon as possible. A New Angle is brought to you by First Security Bank and Blackfoot, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Hey, this is Coulter Nuanas from ESPN Missoula, and you're listening to A New Angle. Yeah, that seems super important, just navigating the bureaucracy here. And you mentioned that path of choosing between a tax credit or a loan and and then being mutually exclusive. I mean, those sorts of divergent decisions have have huge implications. So it's great to hear that that you and others are, are spinning up resources to actually provide some of this counseling. Uh, Susan, do you have a perspective on um, on some of these programs emerging and how people are taking advantage of them? I just had forgotten to mention earlier that most nonprofits that I know of in Missoula are also going to apply for the payroll protection funding, including United Way of Missoula County. That was a subject at our CEO happy hour, virtual happy hour the other night. And it's... Um, new territory for all of us, including our banks. We are waiting this afternoon to hear back from our banking institution because there's a lot of uncertainty at the banker level about, um, you know, as, as Grant said, the, the rules have been coming out and there's been some contradictory advice and some unclear advice. And so we're hoping to submit. And as Grant said, first come, first served, we all want to be at the head of the line. But we're very grateful that it does apply to nonprofits as well. Yeah, are there any? Uh, is it distinguished between nonprofits and businesses in terms of the sorts of relief that uh, you're eligible for? Or what are what are some of the things that that are specific to nonprofit leaders that they can they can tap into for help? Um, not having read the 800 page bill, you haven't yet. Come on, Susan, um, you've had a week. What else have you waiting, been doing? I'm I'm waiting for the classic comics version. That's right, um, the Cliff Notes. Right, Cliff Notes. Uh, I have been on a few webinars, one from our accounting firm, one from the Montana Nonprofit Association, and one from United Way Worldwide. And Grant, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think that the provisions that apply to small businesses are are universally applicable to nonprofits as well. I don't think that there's anything that um, is specially designed for nonprofits. What? Yeah, so there is a some ambiguity about that in the rules, but we've tried to clear that up today. And certainly, the many of the programs that apply to small businesses do apply to 501c3 organizations. Um, there are nonprofits that are not distinguished as 501c3s that are still constituted as nonprofits, and those are not eligible for many of these programs. My my organization, the Missoula Economic Partnership, for example, is a 501c6, so we're not eligible to apply to these programs for support. Okay. So, I mean, we're, we're, there's, there's a ton of bureaucracy to wade through here. And I mean, Bryce, you made this comment kind of before we started recording that, you know, there's, there's going to be mistakes. There's going to be stories about programs not working and people not getting the help they need and all of that. I mean, this would seem like a, a huge lift for a government that had spent the last 50 years investing specifically in the infrastructure to dole out these sorts of relief packages. We're not in that reality. We have not been doing that for the last 50 years. Um, how do people kind of maintain hope that, um, 
that in spite of some of these stories we're going to see in in the media that people and entrepreneurs and businesses and nonprofit leaders should persist in trying to take care take advantage of some of the 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 programs that are out there um how do they be it's going to be tough yeah. uh, i'll be blunt um literally trending right now on twitter is the ppp program and almost what's the 100- acronym what's what's ppp Pay, uh, paycheck protection program okay uh, so that's these loans, uh, and that they went live today. And so last night at midnight, they essentially the administration unilaterally changed the rules from how it was written. Uh, so that was the first negative story they got. And then literally, if you click on this trend, it's right now, it's the top trend. It's almost entire, except for the Secretary of the Treasury. Uh, touting how much money has gone out it's basically everybody talking about how their bank won't let them have it you know the bank you know i've been a customer here for a decade and they because i don't i don't meet whatever criteria the bank has established and then you say well i want to go to another bank that i don't have a relationship with and they're like well wait in line after all of our existing customers uh so you know that's that's you know that's one story another story i read today you know florida intentionally made its unemployment insurance system hard to access so basically, they have no capacity to handle the influx of new claims. Um, so there's going to be a big disaster over as people try and access the money. Uh, the, the hopeful thing is to just keep an eye on the money that's going out. Uh, you know, that's, that's the good news is that money is going to go out. Uh, as I mentioned on the one we did two weeks ago, there's going to be mistakes, uh, don't let the perfect be the enemy of nothing, you know, the good yeah. or the adequate as the case may right, be. Right. Uh, I guess that's the hopeful message is, you know, money will go out. People will get that money and it will benefit them. Uh, the, the problem, but, you know, but don't ignore the problems because the problems are real. And uh, to the extent that, People are having problems. This is where we all need to be stepping up and trying to figure out how we help our neighbors solve whatever problem they're running into. And, you know, helping our government figure out how to, you know, whatever, what we, what can we do to help them? Because, you know, the unemployment insurance system, it's going to be overloaded for a while. And uh, you know, all the people who are trying to administer the loans and all these other programs, they're working real hard too. And, uh, you know, we got to figure out how we can help them. Because they're also on the front lines. Yeah, I think that's a hugely important point, Bryce. Is that the 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 points of contact that people in our community are going to interface with? Those people did not make the policy. Those people did not contribute to the structures that maybe did or didn't set the set the system up for success. And they're all dealing with this crisis as well in their own personal lives. I mean, maybe maybe a relative of theirs is sick or. or or they're sort of having trouble paying their bills, or they're adjusting to remote work like the rest of us and really struggling with the implications of that or homeschooling their kids. So I guess the point there is like, yes, I mean, there's some big system level questions that we need to address and and we shouldn't ignore those or set those aside or make excuses or whatever, but we should be compassionate for the people on the front lines whose job it is, um, to help us uh, all or whoever is access those, those, those programs. Grant, one thing that's occurred to me, I've been inspired at the university of Montana watching um, this institution. That's not really built to change quickly 
quickly pivot to online delivery um, fairly smoothly. Seeing kind of the resilience uh, within uh, our college, the College of Business, and my colleagues in, in spinning up their uh, their classes remotely and, and asking for help and giving help and, and so forth. What are we seeing in the Missoula economy in terms of businesses pivoting how they how they um, create value for customers? I mean, we see it with you know places like the Dram Shop quickly pivoting to. Growler delivery. Um, what are some other cool stories of innovation that that you're seeing um, in your shop? That's right, that's right. And I think uh, probably many of us are familiar with the Montgomery Distillery that quickly pivoted to make hand sanitizer. Right. That I think some of us are seeing on the shelves of our local stores now. Um, and we're seeing this. I mean, I guess I've just been really inspired. And maybe one thing that I think gives me hope in all of this, and and maybe gets back to what you said about having for ca- compassion for people. I have not yet called on or reached out to anybody in the business community to say, can you help? And had somebody say, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I mean, people who I know are exhausted and doing everything they can to hold their own companies together are ready to act in any way we ask to do whatever they can to help the greater community get through this. And, and I, there's no better example for me than one I'm proud we saw um, reflected in the Missoulian this week, which was the story of Rocky Mountain Biologicals who are out at the development park by the airport. And those guys have created sort of uh, their, uh, they've created uh, media for various kinds of testing in the biological services for some time. They've never been involved in sort of virus testing before, but we were called upon by a community medical center maybe two weeks ago, letting us know that they had about two weeks supply left of this uh, viral test media, which once they swab your nose or your throat, they put that swab into this media to store the virus while it gets transported to wherever it's going to be tested. Um, And they had two weeks supply left and other hospitals across the state were running out. Uh, The folks at Rocky Mountain Biologicals, when we called, uh, said, well, we've never done this before, but we will do everything we can to look at what we can do to, to come up with a product. And they were able to reach out as far as to their, uh, North or South Korea parent company to vendors and suppliers across the Western US and come up with all of the necessary ingredients and deliver this product for community hospital, you know, a day before they were scheduled to run out of this product. And they've developed enough here in this first week of production to be able to supply the entire state of Montana and all of its labs and hospitals. So um, we're seeing examples like that. And I think next week we'll be able to celebrate more successes from local manufacturers who are trying to solve some of the challenges that I know our medical providers are running into with personal protective equipment. Awesome. That is encouraging news. Uh, Susan, is this effect manifesting in the nonprofit space? I mean, you all spun up your emergency fund so quickly and, has, and that's made a dramatic difference. Are you seeing cool forms of innovation from other uh, nonprofits and nonprofit leaders in, in our community? I've been so impressed by what local arts organizations are doing to help families during this time of homeschooling and uh, kind of folks being at a loss. To I suppose today uh, is April's first Friday. We should we should mention that. Right, right. Um, but the Zach with their sort of pickup, the Zootown Arts Community Center with pickup and drop off pottery. I saw the historical museum at Fort Missoula has a a sort of a remote scavenger hunt, um, questions that kids can ask their parents. Um, There's some local musicians are doing very clever. There is a a whole virtual sequester fest concert. 
The Clay Studio is doing online resources, um, various art galleries. MCT, this is really amazing, Missoula Children's Theater. Through the end of May, they are giving out materials or releasing materials for people to put on their own musicals at home. And every Monday, they're going to provide a script and music and uh, directions on how to build a set and props and costume design and choreography. They're doing it via uh, live stream video on, on social media. And then, um, you know, families can put on their, their musicals and then send them back to MCT. I, I, I'm just very impressed by the creativity of the sector. And then more on the front lines, of course, just tremendous pressure at the food bank, uh, at the Montana Food Bank Network, at uh, the Pavarello Center, YWCA of Missoula, um, less perhaps opportunity for creative new approaches, but just a doubling down of really some heroic work that's being done by people who are risking their own health and safety to care for others. It's been quite inspiring. Yeah, that is inspiring. I mean, one of the the emergent themes in the national media is this this sort of feeling whether it's among governors of states or citizens in municipalities, is this feeling of, hey, you're on your own. And that's not the message that um, I think we're feeling here in, in this community. Uh, it's, it's, right. it's wonderful to hear um, various aspects uh, of the community coming together. Let's, let's bring this thing to a close again with uh, things that we are thankful for, positive about, um, because I think that's meaningful for us all to just repeat uh, those realities to ourselves and to our community. Susan, let's start with you. What are you What are you thankful for or excited about right now? Well, I'm thankful for being in a job that has allowed me to help make a difference uh, in our community in the last week. And I am thankful for my awesome colleagues. I'm thankful for Instacart delivering my groceries. <laughs> I'm thankful for... Uh, family and friends who are checking on me and honestly so impressed by the work of our community in response to this pandemic. And really, as you said, we are lucky to live in Missoula. So grateful to all of you. Indeed. Grant, how about you? Yeah, this week, I think um, I've just been so grateful to be working with an incredible team at MEP. Uh, the staff that work with me there are have been so dedicated and just put their hearts and souls into trying to understand these programs and convey in a really simple format how members of our community can tap into them and take advantage of them as quickly as possible. And it's just been a, a Herculean effort with a lot of partners and a lot of effort. And I'm really touched by how committed they are to helping our community through this. Excellent. Bryce, uh, you know, you brought us all the tears last week in a powerful moment, a story of what you're doing with, with your kids to share some family history. Uh, yeah. What, um, I'm not asking you to top that necessarily, but yeah, what are you, what are you excited about this week? Well, I'm, I'm excited that another week has passed. You know, the a mantra that I like to say at these times of times is this is temporary. And uh, while we don't have a final date that we know, uh, we know that it will be temporary and another week has passed and I am grateful that another week has gone by. And thus far, everybody at my house is still re relatively happy and healthy, at least as far as you can be with five people living on top of each other and spending well, far more time than we're used to together. Uh, I'm also really happy that we have this kind of technology. Uh, you know, I've, 
I was able to engage in a Zoom party with all of my graduate school friends uh, last week, and that was a lot of fun. And, you know, I mean, those are people that I literally haven't had a group conversation with in, I think, 12 years. And, uh, you know, we had the technology to, you know, bring everybody up and check in. And that was a, it was great. And so uh, we live in, uh, you know, if you're going to be stuck at home, we live in a time where we have at least a lot of distraction and a lot of ability to continue to reach out and connect with other people uh, in ways that our ancestors did not. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I see my phone, you know, rings or vibrates or whatever it does. And I see names that I haven't seen in years pop up. And, you know, in, in a normal existence, those calls are sometimes hard to take. You don't have time to uh, to say, oh, man, you know, I don't have time to talk to that person right now. It's, it's too busy. I got to do this. I got to do that. And now it's a time where, like, one, you're touched to see those calls. You know they're important, and you're driven to answer them and engage in meaningful conversations and, and focus on the importance of those relationships. Uh, for me, I, I am thankful for just finding a rhythm with my children and having a perspective shift this week where, you know, the the, the challenges of trying to work remotely to be removed from my students and do my teaching and do all the administrative stuff I got to do in my role at the university is daunting. Um, and trying to manage homeschooling on top of that is also daunting. It's a challenge and certainly not unique to me. A ton of people are also facing that. But I just finally kind of got to the point this week where I was like, okay, I got to be thankful for this. I'm getting time with my children that is... Um, that is so precious and I'm super thankful for, and I thank them for um, pivoting with elegance as well. So that's been an exciting part of this week. Uh, Bryce, Grant, Susan, always a pleasure. I look forward to reconvening a week from now. Uh, the world will look different, certainly. And I thank you all for helping our audience understand that world and figure out ways that they can connect and give and get help. So thanks to the three of you and we'll, See you next week. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums, Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that A New Angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps, executive producer Stefan Borsum, and interns Aspen Runkle and Max Gibson. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word, and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.